0: Uh, This time of the year typically is marked by a lot of joy. This year we've noticed that there's not as much joy. I think if you've kept up and watched TV much, there's a lot of fear in our country. Um, The media is good at, I think, cultivating fear. And it seems like every time I turn on the TV, it just makes me angry. It makes me frustrated. Uh, It makes me confused at times by what I hear. The politicians saying and what the media tends to twist it into saying and so I have a confession to make to you this this day um, if you ask me about what's going on in our world right now currently I may not really know because I absolutely hate watching broadcast news I do I just hate it every time I turn on a, a TV channel and, and look at what's on there it's always the same it's always bad bad news right we see that constantly. Our world is filled at this time, in this, this age that we live in, with bad news. But I've got good news. God's word is filled with his good news. And we can be nourished in a time of despair. We can have our fears relieved in a time like this that we live in by going to God's word and seeing the promise of God of our God made manifest in his word to his people. So I want to do that this morning. I want to take you to Mark chapter 1 this morning to give you some good news. I'm going to give you an outline here. Mark verses 1 to 11 proclaims the very good news that we need to hear this morning. It proclaims the good news to mankind through four divine revelations. This passage we'll look at will bring us the good news through four divine revelations. Here in verses 1 to 11, we're going to hear and see the revelation of God's good news. And I'm emphasizing hearing and seeing in this, because that's what's happening in this context. Number one, we we are going to hear Jesus announced as God's Messiah in verses 1 to 8 then we are going to see that Jesus appeared as our substitute in verse 9. Then we will see Jesus anointed as our conqueror in verse 10. And then we will hear again about Jesus. We will hear Jesus affirmed as God's beloved Son in verse 11. I hope the outline is helpful. I think it, it helps me to kind of wrap my mind around what's going on in this narrative here at this point in Mark's gospel. First, in Mark 1 to 8, we're going to hear the announcement about God's Messiah. Let me read the text to you this morning, beginning in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. ...with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So in this narrative, what we have is we have John preceding Jesus... He is the messenger who comes before the Messiah. He is God's appointed man. And he is coming into the world at this time before Jesus, declaring the good news message about the soon coming Messiah that was prophesied about throughout the Old Testament, as we saw there in the passages that he quoted from Malachi and Isaiah. This announcement that John was bringing was good news to Israel. It was very good news. But at the same time, it was also very controversial and very confrontational. Sometimes bringing the good news is like that, isn't it? Sometimes you have to be confrontational. Sometimes you have to also deal with controversial issues like sin in people's lives. And that's exactly what was happening when John came with this good news announcement. He had to also talk about the bad news, about what was going on in Israel at that time. Israel had... During this 400 years of silence between Malachi and the incarnation of Christ, we have Israel becoming very, very religious without God, very ritualistic, very self-righteous. They had a standard of righteousness that they developed on their own that they thought was better than what God had given in the word, and they had portrayed that in the way that the Pharisees taught and instructed the people of Israel at that time and they had basically taken God's promise of grace and turned it into a salvation by works that had twisted the gospel itself that God had promised in Genesis 3:15 that he would provide one who would crush sin and Satan for us which would be his own son but John's announcement as i said was good and it was yet controversial it was also confrontational He he called for Israel, the, the people of God, the nation that belonged to God. He called for them to change, to repent. He called for internal change. And he also, in that call, he is calling them to an outward identification with the one that God would send to be their Messiah, which was Jesus Christ. John was calling for Jews at that time to express their faith in God's Messiah in a very particular way turn from trusting in self righteousness and religious works and turn in faith and trust in the one who would come and do what you couldn't do on your own do that and do that by visibly identifying that you needed to be cleansed of your sins by being baptized now this was shocking for for Israel to hear that they needed to be baptized that was shocking they were used to baptizing Gentile converts who were marked by a life of iniquity and, and depravity and, and dirty lives. And yet they were superior to them, so they would baptize them to bring them into the faith. They weren't used to another Jew coming to them saying, you're just a, a filthy bunch of sons of Abraham yourselves. You need to be washed from your self-righteousness, which was just as defiled as. ...as the sinful Gentile beside you. So John comes commanding. Listen, the gospel is not a suggestion. The gospel is not just a plea. It is a God-ordained command... ...for all men everywhere to repent... ...and turn in faith to God's Messiah. So John comes commanding the sons of Abraham, the Jews to repent and believe this message about the Messiah that he was called to proclaim. He's doing this because they needed to be forgiven. They needed to be forgiven, again, of their self-righteousness, just like the Gentiles needed to be forgiven of their defilement, their sins. They needed, after they were truly repentant, they needed to mark that out, In an outward way. They needed to be baptized. They needed to come into alignment with God and do so in an outward way, a public way, confessing that they were yet defiled by their self-righteous ideas and sins. And now they needed to be cleansed by God's grace. And so they come and they have to actually bow in one sense in their heart to God in obedience and testify that they need the Messiah outwardly. And they would do that through baptism. A baptism marked, again, in the mind of the Jew, that this was someone who was dirty at one time, who needed to be cleansed. They were having to confess this through their baptism. And this was hard for a proud people to do. I think it's hard sometimes for people to do that today. When you understand what baptism represents, it represents the fact that you were defiled in your sins. You were a filthy sinner before a holy and righteous God. And only the blood of Christ could wash that away. And you must confess that you are yet a sinner in need of grace when you come to him. And when you come to him, he is the one who cleanses you of all unrighteousness and makes you a new creation. And you should want to identify with him publicly through baptism, just as they were called to here. He calls them to be baptized, and the word he uses here is baptizo, which means to immerse and this word came from the garment industry the garment dyeing industry to be particular and i think it's a really beautiful representation of regeneration what happens is is a heart that is baptized this has nothing to do with water this has to do with what's going on on the inside that's identified through the outward act okay a heart that is baptized or immersed in repentance plunged into repentance is transformed And it's transformed like a white garment that is immersed into a dye and then brought back out a totally different color. That's what this represents. This heart that's been immersed in repentance comes out transformed, different. And that difference should be testified to by obedience, by this identification with God's Messiah, which is what he's calling for here. And this baptism represented their, the self-righteous Jews' need of a true cleansing, a true inward transformation that, again, would be marked out publicly as they go to the waters of baptism. It represented their need to repent of self-righteous works and their need to turn in faith to God's promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Now, look on down in Mark in Mark 1, 5 to 8, we go on to learn that, that here, John, John's work of announcement was really one of preparation. But the Messiah's work was one of regeneration. John was preparing the way for the one who would regenerate those who would repent and turn in faith to him. Look what it says. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, that is to John, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. See, something had happened and brought them to repentance, brought them to confess openly that they were in need of cleansing. They come to him after being regenerated. And by the way, verse 4 is very clear. And when you go to Acts 2, you see this as well in, in our baptism. Baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That word for is ice, and it means as a result of, or because of. Because you've been forgiven, you are baptized. You don't become forgiven because you've been baptized. It flows out of, obedience to Christ flows out of forgiveness that you receive by God's grace. But he's saying here they were changed, they were confessing their sins, they were coming to him. Verse 6, they were coming to this man who's. So odd and awkward, no one really understood him. But they were drawn to him. They weren't drawn to him because he was clever or cool or culturally acceptable. He was an oddball. He's living out in the woods, wearing animal skins, eating bugs. This is not a normal situation. But the call to salvation transformed their hearts and their minds. They weren't called by a man. They were called by God to be obedient. And he says, look, I'm, I'm, I'm just the one who's coming with the message to prepare your way. But he says in verse 7, he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have immersed you with water, but he will immerse you with the Holy Spirit. John's ministry was one of preparation. Jesus is one of regeneration. We see that here. He's telling us that the Messiah is going to come in the power of the Holy Spirit to immerse or baptize the hearts of sinners into a repentance that would transform them externally and internally and eternally. John announces this. His ministry announced the work that Jesus would accomplish. That work that he would accomplish, he would accomplish as our substitute. That's my second point this morning. We see the announcement that he is bringing sort of shape itself up here in verses, well, actually verse 9 in particular here. Here we see that, secondly, Jesus appeared as our willing and obedient substitute. Look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. In those days, meaning at the height of... Of John's announcement ministry. That's when he came. He came from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus came from a town that was not a very nice place to be from. He came from a town with a shady reputation. Nazareth was considered a place of darkness. The people of Galilee were typically marked out as being rude, uncultured. Largely influenced by Gentiles that mingled with them, which was a no-no in this time period. And so they were despised people. No one in Judea wanted to be around these Galileans, these people from Nazareth. That's really why we see later on the Gospels, we see Nathaniel say what he says. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth, speaking about Jesus? Yet Jesus, it says here, at the appointed time, appeared out of Nazareth, he came. The Messiah came out. What's amazing about this to me is this. He came out of the shadows of Nazareth, and he appears as the light of the world. That's what we see actually being stated in one of the prophecies in Isaiah, Isaiah 9. Go there with me. Isaiah 9, verse 1. This is exactly what God had promised that the Messiah would do. He would come to a people who are needy and from a people who are needy to declare God's love and his mercy to sinners like us. Look what it says, Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. This is speaking about Jesus. Jesus was the light that appeared in the midst of the darkness. He came on the scene to show forth the hope that we have through God's love and mercy. He came forth personally. He shows us that. He shows that to Jews and to Gentiles alike, which was God's plan from the beginning, that He would save a people from their sins, not a nationality, but a people that He has chosen from before the foundation of the earth. And He did that through a very specific means. Through the appearance of his willing and obedient Son, our substitute. Verse 9 of Mark tells us that Jesus appeared, as I said, for this very specific purpose. It says in verse 9 that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, when you read that, you should have some sort of a confused look on your face. I just told you that John was baptizing people for what? For repentance. John is over there baptizing people for the repentance of sin. So we need to ask, why did Jesus appear to John in need of being baptized? Was Jesus a sinner? Absolutely not. Jesus is the sinless Son of God who is obedient all the way to death, even death on the cross. He had nothing to repent of. If you, if you look in the other Gospels, you begin to see why Jesus appeared to John to be baptized. Look with me there in John chapter 1. John 1 verse 29. We see an answer to the question here of why was Jesus baptized in John 1 29 to 34. It's the same account that we're reading about in Mark from John's perspective here. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So here we see that John telling us in this passage, John the baptizer tells us that Jesus' baptism identified him, it revealed him to Israel. It revealed to Israel that he was the perfect Lamb of God, their Messiah, that they had longed for. In Matthew, look with me in Matthew 3. Matthew 3, we learn that Jesus was baptized to display his perfect obedience to God as our substitute. Look with me there. Chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan of John, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have, pre- pre- would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus, in his baptism, is fulfilling all righteousness. He's he's fulfilling the righteous requirements of God's law for us. You need to understand that. He fulfilled all these commands... Throughout his life, beginning at his baptism, we see it made manifest. He fulfills the requirements that God commanded for us. He does this in our place. Listen, Jesus trusted God the Father completely. Have you? Completely. Never a doubt. Never an issue in your life where you wonder is God really in control? Listen, Jesus trusted God the Father completely. And listen to this. Jesus turned away from sin continually. He trusted God completely. He turned from sin continually, both of which we cannot do. We do not do. What we see happening in his baptism is a testimony of really his purity his perfection, and his substitution. We see Jesus, his baptism is this. It's, it's, it's really being done not just to fulfill these things, but it's being done in our place for us. He was baptized as our substitute because we don't trust God completely. We don't turn from sin continually, but he did that for us. He knew that we wouldn't completely, listen, when we repent, we're supposed to be turning from sin completely, right? Trusting in God completely. And yet there's a part of us that's still this body of death, this flesh, that's clinging to sin tightly. Not Jesus. He did what we couldn't do. He obeys the Father's desire for his people to turn from their sins and trust in God completely by going through the waters of baptism in our place. Because we cannot do it completely perfectly. In his baptism, what we're seeing really is Jesus' first public act of substitution for sinners. And this is good news for us. He is... Now, through his obedience, he is now the source of our righteousness. He is now the source of our acceptance before God Almighty. He was accepted in our place. He was obedient in our place. This is the good news that Mark is declaring and giving us the narrative of Jesus' baptism. Look on down in Mark chapter 1, verse 10. Mark goes on to tell us that Jesus' anointing at baptism evidenced God's acceptance of his substitutionary life. It evidenced God's blessing and it evidenced the fact that he would be empowered and blessed to do something else for us. Jesus would not just be our substitute in obedience. He would be our substitute and our conqueror when it comes to turning from sin. He would defeat sin in our place. He would Be empowered by the Spirit to conquer sin unlike you and I. I can't conquer sin. You know, people talk about living in victory. Listen, I don't live in victory, neither do you. I live in Christ, who is the victor. He is the victory over my sin. I am not the victor over my sin. I am a wretched sinner saved by a holy and righteous and good God who is all-powerful. And he came and did what I couldn't do. He didn't just live my righteous life for me. He conquered sin's penalty. He conquered it for me as my victor. We see that in verse 10. In verse 10, we see, number three, that Jesus was anointed. He was announced. He appeared. He was anointed here by God the Holy Spirit as our sin-conquering Savior. Look at verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Christ's anointing here is what's going on, what's being portrayed before us. Christ's anointing revealed that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill his messianic work. And this scripture gives us a very graphic illustration of that. We see something amazing here. Look what it says in verse 10. It says, When he came up, Out of the water. By the way, that means he was immersed all the way under, not sprinkled. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening. Now, do you feel the miraculous weight of that verse? You need to. This is this is God, this is God's response to Jesus' obedience. He splits the skies wide open. The word he uses here for opening is the word schizo. It means to split apart or to rip apart. The heavens literally split open, ripped open in response to what Christ has done and to prepare Christ for what God the Father would do next when he pours out on him his blessing as the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. Saints, listen. Here in this passage, what we're seeing is this. We're seeing God the Father's amazing response to his son's obedience. He's responding to Jesus' obedience as our substitute and our sin conqueror. And in response to what Jesus is doing, God the Father rips heaven open. He rips it open to publicly reveal his anointing, his blessing and approval on his beloved son's ministry. That ministry is that of our Savior. This is the Spirit descended on him this is, this is God pouring out his blessing on Jesus' work and obedience here. The Spirit descended upon him, and it remained on him, as we read earlier in the other gospel account. It remained on him as a public testimony of God's blessing. And it remained on him to empower Jesus to fulfill his messianic ministry. Basically, what's going on here is Jesus was being set apart by this blessing from heaven He set apart to conquer sin on our behalf, empowered by the Spirit to accomplish the work that he was sent to do here on the earth. Listen, Jesus didn't rely on his own strength. He relied upon the Spirit's power. He was truly sovereign, still sustainer and creator of the universe. But when he came to earth, he set aside his glory to become our substitute. He relies on the power of the Holy Spirit Like we should. He does it perfectly. He does it in our place. He relies on the Spirit to direct his ministry. He trusts the Spirit completely. And what we're seeing happen here is God is responding to this amazing miracle ripping open the sky. He's responding to Jesus' willing obedience and this work that he is endeavoring to do. He's going out to do, being sent out to do. And God the Spirit came in response to this like a bottle of anointing oil from heaven being poured out by God the Father, covering Jesus and remaining on him throughout his ministry. That anointing, folks, is what guarantees our victory over sin and Satan for eternity. Look at the work, the sin-conquering work that Jesus came to do through the Spirit's power with me in the first chapter of Mark. Look with me in Mark 1, 1, 12, and 13. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus, him, out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Who drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? The Holy Spirit. Jesus goes into the wilderness... To be tempted by Satan and he goes there with no weapons of this world. He goes there with the spirit of God leading him and the word of God in his heart. And he defeats our enemy the way we should. By trusting in God. By knowing God's word. Jesus goes into the wilderness and he conquers our temptation for us. Just think about this. Have you ever been tempted? Have you ever given in to temptation? Jesus never did. He felt the full weight of temptation in the flesh, but he never had that release valve that you and I have that just gives into it. He faced it head on, blow to blow. Yet he never yielded to it for a moment. He was the sinless son of God to the very glory of God, the Father. And it's testified to here as he goes out to conquer Satan himself. Listen, some people have a, 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 a pneumatology, not a pneumatology, an angelology about Satan that is not biblical. Satan is not everywhere all the time, all powerful, working in your life. He's not. He is a creature. He's a fallen angel. He's powerful. He has authority on this earth. But I don't think I rank high enough on his list for him to come after me personally. I've never had to deal with the devil directly. I doubt that any of you have either. But Jesus did. Our greatest adversary, who's so great that his emissaries, fallen angels, influence the minds of men and corrupt this world and corrupt us as a result of that, that enemy, that adversary, came to Jesus head on. And Jesus conquered him in the flesh by the Spirit's power at work in him. He conquered my temptations. I can now run to him, my refuge, my help in time of need. Also, in chapter 1, verse 23, we see that through the power of the Spirit, Jesus cast out demons that controlled men in their lives. Look at this in verse 23. And immediately there was in the synagogue, or in their synagogue, a man who was a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know that you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And this is a great testimony to the Spirit's power at work in Jesus, working with him to cast out a demon, to set a man free from this bondage that he'd been entrapped in. It was destroying his life. He's empowered by the Spirit to do this. This is after the baptism, after he has driven out himself into the wilderness to be tempted and yet conquers it. He comes in. We see him teaching in the synagogue and he faces these demons and he deals with them with power and authority because the spirit's working in him. But listen, as important as that is, it doesn't say that that man was saved, does it? He set him free physically from this demonic power. But there was a greater reason for the spirit to empower Jesus. There was a greater purpose than just to cast out demons. The greatest work that Christ came to accomplish through the Spirit, was seen at the cross. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but... By means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 14 says that Christ offered himself up to die for our sins through the power of the eternal spirit. That is the Holy Spirit who is at work in him. Now church, listen. I'm, I'm really thankful. I think you should be thankful. We should all be thankful of what we see revealed in Mark one ten. Mark one ten. Reveals that God the Holy Spirit anointed Jesus to be our sin conqueror. I'm glad because, as I said earlier, I cannot conquer my own sins. Can you? I can't. I don't have the power. I don't have the righteousness on my own to even turn from sin apart from the spirit working in me. But it's through Christ's work. As we read about his life in the Gospels, it's through Christ's work and his empowerment by the Spirit that we are saved from sin's penalty and its power through his anointing. He was anointed for us. He had perfect power and righteousness. He conquers sin in the flesh the way we are commanded to conquer it yet we fall short. Jesus does this through the Spirit working in him. Now, this this should astound us as Christians. You're saved from the penalty and the power of sin because of Christ's anointing. Are you still living in sin joyfully? Are you still toying with sin, thinking it's not that big a deal? Listen, Jesus came to deal with it And he came to deal with it in the flesh by taking our place upon a cross to conquer it for us, to set us free from this trap. Why would we want to go on living in it? It shames the name of God. It tramples underfoot the blood of Christ. We should want to turn because no longer are we slaves if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If he is Lord, you will obey his commands. You'll do so joyfully. You're not a slave to sin anymore because Jesus was your anointed sin conqueror. He defeated sin for you in the flesh by the power of the Spirit. I just want to stop for a second. I'll let you kind of soak in the big picture here of what I'm trying to get across this morning. I want you to see the, the big picture about these three revelations that we've already heard and seen so far. What we're doing is we're, we're hearing and seeing... The revelation of God's triune mercy at work in Christ's ministry here. Do you you see, do you recognize the triune work of God taking place in this narrative? This is amazing. We hear the announcement of God's merciful promise through John as Jesus comes forth. We see the appearance of God the Son's merciful obedience as Jesus is being baptized as our substitute. And then we see the anointing of God the Holy Spirit's merciful empowerment that equips Jesus to be our conqueror. And then here at the end, in Mark 1 11, we hear one more thing. We hear God the Father's merciful affirmation of his Son's righteous work. In Mark 1, 11, we hear fourthly, Jesus affirmed publicly by God the Father. As the beloved Redeemer of his people. Look at verse 11. It says, And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. I was thinking about that coming over here this morning, that passage in particular. And I am so grateful to God for Jesus' affirmation of being pleasing to the Father because I am not. I cannot. My flesh would not please the Father on its own. I am not righteous. You are not righteous. But the righteous one came and was testified to by God the Father from heaven, saying, this is the one. This is the one I'm, I'm pleased with. This is the one that's your substitute now. This is the one that's your sin conqueror. This is the one who loves you and came and gave his life up for you so that you could be set free from serving self, from serving sin, serving Satan. This affirmation by the Father is so important to us because none of us are pleasing to God. We are an awful stench in a holy God's nostrils. But through Christ's atoning work, His blood has made us clean. We are now a fragrant aroma. We now smell like Jesus in the Father's nostrils. That's amazing. What's amazing here is this is such... A miraculous text. And so many times we read these things, and we just got to read through them. A voice comes from heaven. Folks, Has that happened here? Have you heard a voice from heaven? Have you seen the skies ripped open and the Spirit of God coming like a dove and landing upon someone? This is all miraculous. God speaks from heaven. Earlier in this narrative, John's crying out as one in the wilderness, but now God is thundering from heaven. This is astounding. John was giving an announcement. God is giving an affirmation. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God publicly and powerfully affirms that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and in the text, it means the only one when he talks about his beloved son, It affirms publicly and powerfully that Jesus alone has been, is now, and always will be pleasing to God. He is the only one who has always been pleasing, is now at that moment in his ministry pleasing, and would always be pleasing to God the Father. This is an infinite statement because it's about an infinite person. I hope we see the big picture here. What Mark's doing is he's reminding us of the good news. It's good news that Jesus was pleasing to the Father for us. He became our willing substitute, obeying the Father in our place. Now, all those who turn from their sins and trust in this message, this Messiah, will be pleasing in God's sight by grace alone through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. The big picture is this. Mark reveals to us that we are saved by God's triune grace that's revealed here even in Christ's baptism. Listen, we're we're saved by what God the Father promised, God the Son accomplished, and what God the Holy Spirit blessed. That's what's being revealed in this text. The divine revelation in Mark chapter 1 tells us this. We are saved through Jesus' obedience, the Spirit's power, and the love of God the Father. The love he has for his Son who lived our life for us and was empowered to accomplish what we cannot accomplish. And this is good news. Again, it's good news because no one in this room, not a single one of us, could ever please God on our own. The requirement for heaven is absolute perfection. If you are not perfect, if you are not righteous, you would be condemned before a holy and righteous God. But by God's grace, you've been granted a righteousness that's outside of you, that's foreign, that's forensic, that's imputed to you, legally yours, by what Christ has done. But apart from that, we're all defiled. We're all going to hell. We deserve it. We can't please God. So God sent His Son to do what we cannot do so that we could testify to how great our God is. We can testify to His triune love and mercy. We can't please Him. Or we're defiled. We can't do anything but sin. That's in our nature. We're born sinners. We're inclined to sin from an early age. We do it openly, publicly. And yet God in mercy sent one to live a life that we couldn't live so we could be set free from the condemnation of our sins. Jesus willfully laid his life down for us. Scripture teaches us in Ephesians 2 that God, who is rich in mercy, did something to save us. John 3.16 makes it clear as well. God sent his obedient, righteous, and beloved son to rescue and reveal to us sinners that God is full of love and mercy and grace. And God revealed this to us, rescued us, not from a distance, but personally by taking on flesh himself and living our lives for us. Suffering under God, the Father's wrath in our place. I need that reminder today. I think all of us do. We all deserved the full and righteous wrath of God. But in God's triune mercy and love, he displays to us through the incarnation of Jesus, the life and obedience of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus, Jesus, that Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness to become our sacrifice that was acceptable to God. And Jesus receives the entirety of the penalty that each one of us deserves That believe upon him. He receives the entirety of it that would take all eternity to, to express. He receives that upon the cross in our place so that his righteousness, which we cannot measure, would be eternally imputed to us, and that we would be always acceptable to the Father. I need this reminder, because probably like much, most of you here, I don't always feel like a Christian. I don't always feel forgiven. In the midst of my sin, I do not, I do not feel forgiven. I don't feel accepted sometimes. I don't feel beloved by God. Until his spirit comes and quickens my mind and my heart and turns my eyes to Jesus, my substitute, my savior, my sin conqueror. It's at that time that I rejoice. It's at that time that I praise God, not myself for pulling myself up by my bootstraps and cleaning up my life. My life is a wreck and would be a wreck eternally apart from Jesus Christ interceding for me. So Mark's just helping us remember this, I think, this morning, through this narrative of Jesus' baptism. Through this, Mark is reminding us that through faith in John's announcement of the Messiah and Jesus' willing appearance as our substitute and the Spirit's anointing, And the Father's affirmation, it's through these things that sinners like us are rescued and we are accepted and we are loved by a holy and righteous and almighty God. This is humbling and joyful. Matter of fact, this is God's good news. In a world filled with bad news today, I need to hear this. I need to remember when everything's falling apart in our country that God is on the throne and that Christ came to accomplish his work and he did so for the glory of God the Father and all his people who he purchased with his own blood will be brought to glory one day. It doesn't matter what our president says or does. He is not going to change God's sovereign plan for his people and our witness here on the earth. This is good news. It's good news that I think we need to rest in, we need to rejoice over, and we need to share with others this time of the year. Let's pray that we do that this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's through your word that we see the revelation of your grace, your triune grace. You are far And above us. Yet you came to us. You are sovereign and you are personal. You have expressed your love and your mercy in the most personal way possible. You sent your son to live for us. And then to die in our place. And then to be raised up. Testify to his perfection and your acceptance of his sacrifice for us. This is the good news. It's The good news I want to remember and recall to my heart daily. God, we need this reminder, not just at Christmas time, but every day. We need to hear the gospel. And rejoice in our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.